Welcome to the 112th episode of Egg Timer Philosophy and the conclusion of the Descartes Summer Series. I'm your host, Eric Roark, and for today's episode, the sixth and final meditation from Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy. A major theme of today's episode is how, in a number of ways, Descartes' sixth meditation, which he entitles The Existence of Material Things and the Real Distinction Between Mind and Body, takes on a different character than the first five meditations. By the conclusion of the sixth meditation, the skepticism that Descartes seemed empirically crippled by in the first meditation is basically gone. Descartes begins the sixth meditation by discussing mathematics, a favorite topic of his, specifically geometrical shapes and the difference between the imagination and the understanding. Here, he considers the difference between understanding and imagining a triangle and doing the same with a thousand-sided object. He maintains that he can imagine and understand a triangle, but that cannot be said for a thousand-sided shape. With a shape like that, a thousand sides, he can understand it with his mind's eye, but he can't imagine it. The imagination is more limited than the understanding. And to fully express the difference between the two, Descartes says, and this is him directly, So, the difference between this mode of thinking, imagining, and pure understanding may simply be this. When the mind understands, it has in some way turned toward itself and inspects one of the ideas which are within it. But when it imagines, it turns toward the body, turns toward the body, and looks at something in the body which conforms to an idea understood by the mind or perceived by the senses. Descartes then quickly uses this line of thought to establish that he knows he has a body as something external from his mind. The existence of his having a body is the best explanation, Descartes says, to explain the existence of imagination. If not for the imagination, Descartes would be stuck here with no clear argument to suggest that he knows he has a body, that he knows he is something beyond a thinking thing. A couple of things are worth pointing out here. The first is that, they, is that Descartes uses the mental faculty of imagination to establish some justification for the belief that something external, the body, exists. The justification here works from the internal to the external and not the other way around. The second is that if you're persuaded by Descartes' argument here, then evidence for the reality of things external to the mind isn't likely going to stop at the body. It's going to extend to other material objects that we often take to be external to us. And lastly, it's worth noting Descartes' shifting standard for knowledge, and this will also happen later in this meditation. Earlier in the meditations, specifically in the first and second, he used absolute undoubtable certainty as his standard for knowledge. But now he seems to be slipping into what's often referred to as inference to the best explanation. And he admits this. 
And he says at this point that he has only shown that the existence of material things is probable, but doesn't form any necessary inference, as he puts it. Descartes now presses the question of whether material objects actually exist after thinking that he's determined that they're at least capable of existing. He begins this process by returning to his empirical senses and sense perception. His account here recalls the common sense empirical approach to knowledge that most people have, and that he was convinced by before his meditations. It is the path that he says his nature pushes him toward. But as with a common theme throughout all the meditations, Descartes again finds reasons to doubt the veracity of his sense perceptions. He even suggests that his perceptions of pain regarding his body are subject to doubt, and brings the idea of what is today called phantom leg syndrome on the table. He could sense pain from a leg that no longer exists, and this, he says, is even more reason to be skeptical of the certainty that is often assigned to the empirical senses, even as they apply to bodily sensations like pain. If nature allows for something like phantom leg syndrome to occur, then we can question how much trust ought to be placed in nature and empirical senses as a guide toward uncovering truth. So far, the sixth meditation takes a very similar style to the first five, but abruptly, about halfway through the sixth meditation, Descartes does a bit of a 180, and the general feeling of his thought changes dramatically. He says at the start of section 78 that after better understanding his self and God through his meditations thus far, that, and this is him directly, I do not think that I should headlessly accept, heedlessly, accept everything I seem to have acquired from the senses. Neither do I think that everything should be called into doubt. Now, this statement marks a major transition in Descartes' thought. He began in the first meditation by calling everything into doubt, especially everything he thought he knew from the senses. But now he is saying he shouldn't really do that. He's now suggesting that the position of global skepticism, of placing all his beliefs in doubt, was a mistake that he now realizes at the end of his meditations. So why the radical change in tone for Descartes? We see his answers in sections 78 through 81. The arguments there get complex, but the basic idea is that the senses allow us to, at least some of the time, clearly and distinctly form ideas about that which is external to ourself, understood at this point as a thinking thing. And earlier in the meditations, Descartes took considerable time and energy to defend the idea that God exists and does not engage in deception. And using these two thoughts, Descartes says, and this is him directly, I do not see how God could be understood as anything but a deceiver if the idea were transmitted from a source other than the corporeal thing. And by corporeal there, you can essentially read that to mean material thing. All right. So when I look around the room and I'm recording, I see a laundry basket half filled with clothes. And that's actually the case. I seem to see this at least.
I possess the idea clearly and distinctly in my mind. Why think this matches, though, with an actual basket in the external world as opposed to just an idea in my mind's eye? Well, because Descartes thinks that God would be deceiving me if the idea were transmitted by a source other than the external material object. And since God can't be a deceiver, then the basket which I have an idea of, a clear and distinct idea of, must exist as a material object. Now, I've stressed in earlier episodes of the summer series that God plays a crucial role in Descartes' views about knowledge. And here we see that playing out again. Without a non-deceiving God, Descartes doesn't seem to offer any path for thinking that the ideas we possess would necessarily or even likely correspond to external material things. By this point, Descartes has stopped talking about the possibility of something like an evil demon corrupting our thoughts because he thinks he has successfully defended the existence of a non-deceiving God in earlier meditations. And so such a hypothetical isn't worth thinking about anymore for him. And Descartes is not done utilizing his belief in God to increase the scope of what he can know. He now moves to do this by making an appeal to his nature, which he maintains was bestowed upon him by God. After maintaining that his nature is God-given, he says, and again this is him directly toward the end of section 80, There is nothing that my nature teaches me more vividly than that I have a body, and that when I feel pain, there is something wrong with the body, and that when I am hungry or thirsty, the body needs food or drink, and so on. So I should not doubt there is some truth to this. I have to point out here the curious use of the phrase, some truth. Adding that some here, as a sort of hedge it seems, is not something you would have seen much of or at all in the earlier meditations. Earlier Descartes seems set on what he can know with absolute certainty, and it's only in later meditations, specifically the six meditations, with examples like this where Descartes uses language invoking degrees of knowledge or some truth. Descartes continues with this line of reasoning and eventually settles on the idea that the body and mind form a type of unit. No longer is Descartes content to say that the self is simply a thinking thing, but instead now the self for Descartes becomes a fusion or unison of mind and body. So the idea that his self is just a thinking thing, an idea he embraces on numerous occasions before the sixth meditation, is abandoned here. And now he sees his self as some combination or unison of mind and body. But even this gets very complex because even though the self for Descartes is now this unison of mind and body, the two are still completely different things for him. The mind for Descartes is an indivisible thing, while the body, he says, can always be divided. So it is a bit strange to say the least, but for Descartes, the self, by the end of the sixth meditation, becomes a unison of both mind and body that are completely two different types of things. This is a spot where a listener who heard earlier episodes of the summer series might scratch their heads a bit. 
For example, back in the third meditation, Descartes was harsh to the idea of using our nature to provide a basis for knowledge. He flat out rejected it. And at that point expressed the idea that even though nature pushes us to place trust in our senses, there is no reason to do so. And instead we should trust what he called the natural light of reason that we can only grasp with the mind. And while he does say some cautionary things about using our nature as a, as a, as a means of our epistemic justification or knowledge-based justification, even as late as a sixth meditation, he's still really cozied up to the idea quite a bit by the end of the sixth meditation that nature can provide us this type of, of justification. I think it would be difficult to, con to find a consistent treatment of nature or human nature throughout the entirety of the meditations. Descartes just uses the idea in too varied a way throughout. Before concluding the sixth meditation, Descartes spends a number of pages dealing with objections related with various human dysfunction or problems with nature and whether that can be squared with a non-deceiving God. He spends a lot of time taking a look at a case of a person whose nature is telling them to drink water when, the body, when their body is already more than fully hydrated. In the interest of time, I won't go over those arguments, but they are there in the sixth meditation if you want to take a look at them. I want to end this episode and the summer series by taking a look at how Descartes concludes his thoughts and how far away he has moved from the skepticism he was so troubled with in the first meditation. He ends his meditations right about where he starts them, with his objection from dreaming. If you remember from the first meditation, Descartes suggests that what we can call our empirical beliefs um, excuse me, he suggests that um, we can call all our empirical beliefs into at least some doubt because we can never be completely sure if we're dreaming or awake. And if we cannot know for sure that whether we're dreaming or awake, then we cannot use the senses as a guide for knowledge understood as absolute certainty. But in the end, Descartes calls those earlier doubts laughable. Appealing back to ideas about his nature combined with a non-deceiving God, Descartes offers a refutation of his own skeptical starting place. He says directly, For I know that, it, that in matters regarding the well-being of the body, all my senses report the truth much more frequently than not. Also, I can almost always make sure that one sense that I, let me start that last sentence over. Also, I can almost always make use of more than one sense to investigate the same thing. And in addition, I can use both my memory, which connects present experiences with preceding ones, and my intellect, which has now examined all the causes of error. Accordingly, I should not have any further fears about the falsity of what my senses tell me every day. On the contrary, the exaggerated doubts of the last few days should be dismissed as laughable. This applies especially to the principal reason for doubt, namely my inability to distinguish between asleep and awake. 
Descartes' meditative journey from global skepticism to general knowledge is complete. How well it succeeds has, to no surprise, been a topic of debate in the philosophical community for the past four centuries. I hope you've enjoyed the Descartes Summer Series, and I also hope you'll join me back for another episode next week. Until then, wishing you good philosophical vibes.